Welcome to Mill Resource Radio, where we highlight military and veteran support organizations. Hear directly from organization leaders and those who've benefited from their services. Thousands of organizations exist, but if you don't know about them, how do you seek their help? Join us for discovery, access, and knowledge about effective military and veteran organizations sharing their missions and accomplishments directly with you. And now here are your hosts, Linda Crater and Les Davis. We're glad that you have joined us this morning. I am joined by Jason McNamara as co-host today, and we have a very interesting follow-on show today. About three weeks ago, we had a program centered on an overview of intimate partner violence. And today, due to the number of inquiries we received from that show, we have a follow-on program to discuss the intersection of intimate partner violence with co-occurring conditions like PTSD, TBI, substance abuse, and depression, and what that all means for military families. Mm. Both our guests are experts in their fields with both extensive credentials, which I will allow them to share, and vast practical field experience. And today we'll tap into both. So I'd like to give a welcome back to Glenna Tinney to our show. Welcome back, Glenna. Thank you. It's a delight to have you. And a warm welcome to April Gerlach. Welcome, April. Thank you. You are most welcome. I think this is very interesting when we can go back and go deeper into a topic that obviously touched so many people. So let's start with you, Glenna, and talk a little bit about yourself and then April a little bit and then move right into what we're going to talk today about the intersection of co-occurring conditions and IPV. Okay. Well, um, I'm a social worker, and um, I'm a retired Navy captain. I spent 24 years in the Navy working primarily in the family advocacy program, which handles uh, child abuse and neglect and domestic violence. Um, I'm also an Army brat. My father retired from the Army, um, and he served two tours in Korea. And at the time, of course, I didn't know it, but he came back with post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, survivor guilt. And I watched how that kind of played out with him over the course of his life. He was never diagnosed formally or treated. Um, And I became involved in the uh, domestic violence and um, sexual assault world way back in the mid-70s when I got out of graduate school and went to uh, work in a mental health center. So I've been involved in, since that time when we set up a rape crisis center and a um, um, battered women's shelter for the first time in that community. So I've been involved in this work for decades at this point. And you are also part of the Battered Women's Justice Project, correct? Um, I worked for the Battered Women's Justice Project managing the military and veteran advocacy program for six years, and now I am a consultant to the Battered Women's Justice Project. Perfect. April? Yeah, my story starts quite a while ago as well. Uh, I started working for the VA in 1980 when the DSM-3 came out with the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I actually started working with veterans and treating post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, kind of way when it was just first being talked about in a way that we were approaching it in some kind of uh, systematic uh, way to, to provide treatment. And then I started an anger management class for veterans in the early 80s. And I worked with Dr. Ann Ganley, who was running a 
Batters Rehabilitation Program, which is what they called it back then, in the same clinic. And she would, we would sort through to make sure the guys got in the right program because they all wanted in my 12-week anger management class and not in her like year-long program. <laughs> and I did some of the very early research in the area of anger and PTSD. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner, by the way, and a research scientist. So anyway, when Anne then transferred up to Seattle VA and I was at American Lake, I continued the program down there and helped co-write a sharing agreement with Madigan Army Medical Center to provide uh, a batter's intervention program for active duty military and veterans. And we mm -hmm. shared human resources. So we worked with the staff over there in family advocacy and then at American Lake. And we saw service members and we saw uh, veterans in the batter's intervention program. We did that throughout the, the 90s. And then, of course, the VA realigned its resources and shut the program down. And then in um, throughout the early 2000 and up to about 2011, I actually uh, had a funded uh, federal grant where I was looking at the intersection of PTSD and intimate partner violence. So the parallel story that's going on is not only working with veterans with intimate partner violence, but also post-traumatic stress disorder and other co-occurring problems throughout my VA career uh, during this 30-year span. And I happened to marry a Vietnam vet very, way back a long time ago in the early 80s as well, who served uh, two tours in Vietnam with the Special Forces. So I think I have come at this from several different perspectives. Well, I think the the field work that you all have done, whether it's in these projects that you've been involved with or your personal experiences, I think they all bring a real authenticity to what you're talking about because everything that you've talked about uh, in the previous program, Glenna, and the things that we spoke about earlier, April, uh, on the phone prior to this program, all speak to practical applications. How do we get solutions to these issues? And looking at things not with a magic wand approach, but with here are some real things we can do to make a difference. So, Glenna, can you talk more about combat stress reactions and how they play into IPV? Sure. Um, <clears throat> you know, we always like to emphasize the unique issues that the military population and veteran population um, kind of experience. Um, so deployment, of course, is one of those things. And with deployment, you have um, a reunion and reintegration, and that deployment is often to combat zones, but not always. It can be deployment for peacekeeping missions as well. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, the Army speaks to this concept of battle mind, where um, when people are in a combat zone particularly, the focus is really on survival. Their adrenaline is high all the time. They're really focused on you know, having that weapon, which is the difference between them and their uh, buddies' survival. Um, and so they're functioning in that kind of level uh, for long periods of time when they're in a combat zone. And then we pick them up and uh, bring them back home for some period of time. And, you know, people have deployed multiple times to Iraq and Afghanistan. So we have people that have deployed into the teens. Um, mm -hmm. So they're kind of back and forth, back and forth. Um, and when people come back, they, they go through a time where they may have a variety of symptoms. I mean, there can be problems with sleep. 
There can be problems with dreams and nightmares, bad dreams and nightmares. There can be anger issues, short-tempered, being agitated, kind of irritable, annoyed about things, getting jumpy and startled easily, avoiding people in places that could see increased drinking, smoking, potential drug use, issues around trusting people, uh, kind of looking to over-control or over-protect, trying to control their environment. Um, many people have those kind of experiences when they first come back, but, but most people get through that time frame and do not have ongoing issues or symptoms. But sometimes there are people, some people, um, and you know, the VA um, estimates somewhere around 18%, but I've seen as high as like 35% have ongoing symptoms and and therefore at that point are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder where you still you see some of these this kind of issues and problems that are ongoing and you know we're going to talk a lot more about PTSD in just a few minutes so so the, the key point here is though that everybody doesn't have uh, PTSD and everybody doesn't have difficulty adjusting they may initially go through some of these kind of experiences and have some of these symptoms but for the most part, for most people, they do not last. They move past them and they settle back into their lives um, and, and fairly smoothly uh, in terms of most people. Which is a blessing. I, I actually know a lot of veterans who had, with the multiple deployments, they came home and had a, a protocol they would follow. Um, I distinctly remember one uh, a woman veteran who came home and she said, I hole up with a, a television series you know, whether it was Law and Order or House of Cards or, or whatever it might be um, for a week and, and sort of diffuse, then sort of ease back in. Um, others would go into sports madly and still others were in their families. So I think there are many ways people come back. And as you said, not everyone has these issues. Just briefly, and we'll go on break and then continue to the discussion afterward, with the co-occurring conditions, when you are looking at someone, how do you tease out whether it's an anger management issue, whether it's a one-time uh, anger management um, physical violence, or it's a return punch? Uh, I'm just trying to get at how do you tease out the, the real batterer, the person who is uh, an IPV perpetrator, and we can talk about that after because that's probably a longer question than can be answered in 30 seconds or less. But do you go through a rule-out session with people? You do. You, you know, it, the key is the screening as an assessment and trying to screen and assess for not only IPV but also um, all these co-occurring conditions when you have co-occurring we're going to go on break. I apologize for cutting you off. We're going on break right now. We'll be right back. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. Are you a family caregiver in the military community? Join us on VeteranCaregiver.com. In the military and veteran community, there are 5.5 million caregivers of our nation's injured, ill, and wounded. Whether your family member served in World War II or in the most recent Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, there are unique needs of military and veteran caregivers. Navigating any medical system takes skill and help in obtaining good care. 
Veteran Caregiver has access to a rich network of advocates and organizations to assist you. Find excellent resources, short informative videos, an active Facebook community, and empathetic support. Veteran Caregiver supports those from every service branch and those who served in any conflict. Need information on sandwich caregiving, EFMP, or aging issues? VeteranCaregiver.com provides information and community to those managing busy lives with compassionate care. That's VeteranCaregiver.com. Support for those who care. talking about the intersection of PTSD, TBI, other co-occurring conditions with intimate partner violence. And prior to the break, I was asking Glenna, I believe, about how do you rule out certain uh, other conditions that, that people would probably prefer to be diagnosed with or labeled with, such as anger management. I, I, I have a feeling, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that someone would like to be labeled just angry as opposed to a a violent partner. So perhaps you could tease that out a little bit. Sure. I mean, the key to being able to sort all that out is doing uh, good screening and a very thorough assessment. So when there is intimate partner violence, a good assessment would be looking for are there co-occurring conditions going on at the same time. And vice versa, if you have co-occurring issues like someone is diagnosed with PTSD, you should be asking about intimate partner violence in the relationship as well. And um, April's going to talk a lot about this intersection of these co-occurring conditions um, and how you, and later we're going to also really talk more specifically and in detail about differentiating uh, intimate partner violence tactics from PTSD symptoms. But I think first we were going to kind of talk more about you know, what are these co-occurred conditions and how they intersect with intimate partner violence. So I'm going to turn it over to April to do that. Okay, thanks, Glenna. I think, you know, in in the course of the over 30 years that I did this work, I talked with hundreds, probably thousands of veterans and their partners and family members. And one of the things I was most struck by in terms of differentiating this is in relationships where let's say there's PTSD, maybe depression, maybe substance use, but there is an intimate partner violence that the couples are really approaching problem solving as partners and, and talk about how they approach these problems in a we sense. You know, they are, they are partners in approaching how they're going to manage things, manage nightmares, uh, manage getting to appointments, that sort of thing. When there's intimate partner violence, that's not there. You see there's a lot of overlap in some of the PTSD symptoms, and especially now with the DSM-5, where they've changed the arousal symptom cluster a little bit, and now it's not only um, anger and irritability, but anger with aggressive, perhaps an aggressive response, even an assaultive response with little or no provocation. And so it's hard, I think, for people to understand, well, if that's part of PTSD, then how is that different from intimate partner violence? And the thing we watch for with that is really these patterns, sort of coercive, 
controlling abusive behaviors that are part of intimate partner violence tactics. And so what I look for when I'm trying to differentiate this is, is this aggressive behavior just part of a symptom? Is this a reactive response, uh, maybe part of that uh, hyperarousal symptom cluster, and there, there aren't these other behaviors like put-downs, name-calling, um, follow, you know, following the victim around or following the partner around or checking up on her, putting her down, that sort of thing. Those sorts of things speak to then intimate partner violence. It's not what we consider a PTSD symptom. Just very quickly, the PTSD symptoms are re-experiencing. So the, the person may have nightmares, they may have flashbacks, sometimes they may have aggressive acting out behaviors within that symptom cluster. Uh, they have avoidance, which is self-imposed. They don't want to go to church, maybe don't want to go to parties, don't want to go to gatherings. But it's self-imposed. It's They don't impose that on their partner or their family members. Uh, they have negative cognitions and moods, so they have beliefs about themselves and others. Maybe they um, have an inability ex to experience happiness and loving feelings. They feel shame and something's wrong with them. And then the last symptom cluster is arousal, where you see that irritability and angry outbursts. That's where you also see uh, reckless behavior and hypervigilance. So April, As a, April, yes, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I, can I just say, related to what you were saying before, could you speak to, I mean, part of the issue that we see also is, it's kind of where you see these behaviors, because, you know, when people are claiming that they just, it's an anger issue, that, you know, I'm just angry all the time, yet they're not, they're not always, <clears throat> they're acting that anger out in a lot of different settings. But when you have IPV, it really is focused in on that partner. Could you, you want to speak to that more? Because it's, it's kind of like, you know, a d diffuse kind of anger versus a targeted or specific kind of anger, right? Right. Yeah. I, I always say that the person is kind of like a prickly pear. They're just mm. things bug them. You know, they don't like to stand in a long line at the grocery store. They get irritable when somebody's writing out a check. You know, they're just kind of generally irritable and generally just prickly about stuff. And so it's not directed at, you know, exclusively at the partner. With IPV, you see these very directed, um, you know, aggressive or irritable, um, psychologically abusive behaviors really directed at that partner. You know, April, I'm going to insert something here because we didn't want to repeat what happened in the what we discussed in the first program. But I think it is important that people don't think of IPV only as physical violence. I think you brought up some of the symptoms that are also hallmarks, uh, stalking, put down, sarcastic talk, uh, control, and even just eliciting fear in their victims. Um, and, and that's important, too, because that's not physical beating and maybe talk about the difference between a batterer and IPV in the controlling aspect just briefly so that we can fill in maybe a gap from somebody listening to this show without the benefit of the first one. Right. Well, that control piece is a key element in intimate partner violence where you see the, um, the, these other pattern behaviors. And, and that's really, I think one of the most, um, 
pieces that distinguishes the two between PTSD and IPV is there's really that that emotional abuse, the suspiciousness, the jealousness, the accusations, the the name calling, that sort of thing. And with with when the co-occurring PTSD is also present, one of the things in our research that we found is that the person with PTSD or the batterer then also blames the victim or often the caretaker for their circumstances. It's like, uh, you're responsible, it's your fault that I'm having these problems. And they may express their anger in a righteous rage sort of way and a, a, an, a, um, and an anger in a way that justifies their anger, that they're entitled to that anger. It's even words like you owe me. Um, that's one of the things that when the both PTSD and IPV were present that we saw. Makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Thank you for filling that in. So we ought to also emphasize that not everyone with PTSD has IPV. Not everyone who goes to combat comes back with IPV. The causal relationships are fuzzy. In fact, they're not proven, correct? Correct. It's it's not causal. There's really a high relationship, though, with combat-related PTSD, not just combat, but combat-related PTSD and the the intensity and the severity of the intimate partner violence. So there is a link there, but it's not causal. And it also works in both male and female, correct? Yes. Um, You know, I I saw differences in working with women veterans um, in terms of their PTSD expression around anger or even aggression. it, when male veterans would have nightmares that are just PTSD related, we would sometimes see strangulation as part of that. Doesn't mean that there's necessarily intimate partner violence. You have to see if these other behaviors are going on. Women veterans would also have aggressive nightmares, but I didn't see things like strangulation that women were strangling their partners. So, you know, some differences in how those symptoms present. And so can we, can we also emphasize, though, when we're talking about these co-occurring conditions, we want to be really clear that, you know, sometimes these are combat-related and sometimes they're not combat-related because people have trauma histories even prior to coming in the military, so sometimes they have PTSD already before they come in the military, and everybody doesn't deploy to a war zone. And so the military and veteran population does not have a corner on the market for all these co-occurring conditions, the PTSD, the TBI, depression, um, substance abuse. The general population of intimate partner violence offenders, we see a lot of these same co-occurring conditions in these people as well. I mean, they're not for the same reason. You know, they may have been abused as children. They may have witnessed a lot of violence in their home or in their community. Um, they may have um, had um, kind of accidents that may have caused a traumatic brain injury. You know, it wasn't from combat, but they could have had sports accidents or motor vehicle accidents. Um, they could, you know, sometimes the PTSD, there's a, an accompanying depression, anxiety, kind of mood issues that lead people to self-medicate. Whether they're veterans or whether they're not veterans, they use substances 
Um, sometimes, you know, it's alcohol. Sometimes it's um, other types of drugs. Because I know <clears throat> that we hear from a lot of the battery intervention programs that, you know, the people coming into those programs have a, a lot of substance kind of issues. And we see certainly a, a, a strong relationship between having substance abuse and the IPV, having mental health issues. And as we've already said, you know, many of our military personnel and veterans coming, those coming back from a combat zone do indeed have some of these kind of uh, co-occurring issues when they come back. So, you know, because people want to, many times, I mean, from the work that April and I have been doing, and we do a lot of presenting together across the country to different groups, there tends to be an assumption being made that if you have someone who deployed to a war zone and then comes back home and has these co-occurring issues and intimate partner violence, that it's because they deployed to the war zone, or it's because they have these combat-related issues. So I just always, we just always try to make the point that it isn't just the military personnel and veterans who have these issues, uh, and also our intimate partner violence offenders. It's very important to know that it's true across the whole population of offenders. And the intervention often needs to be very similar or very much the same. Well said. We will go on a short break. We'll be right back after these short messages. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. the millions of women each month who listen to Wise Health for Women Radio. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Join us for revitalizing conversations on fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging new, healthier perspectives. You provide a special spark to those around you, and you manage many roles, entrepreneur, mom, wife, coach, friend, daughter, and more. Here's a great way to inspire and nurture you. On Wise Health for Women Radio, host Linda Crater and her amazing guests share how to move toward your wishes and dreams and find what is possible in your busy life. If not today, then when? Take steps to flourish over 40. Join us on Wise Health for Women Radio, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, on iTunes, and more at wisehealthforwomenradio.com. Helping women thrive. discussion on intimate partner violence with co-occurring conditions such as PTSD, TBI, depression, and substance abuse. On the break, we were talking among the group about um, a, a particular issue. Jason, you had the question. Yeah, sure. So uh, before we went on break, you actually mentioned that some of our veterans or our active military members have pre-existing conditions, meaning that they've actually experienced something in their own home or in their communities that have led them to have some of these tendencies even before they enter the military. And then they've entered the military and then they're sent on their way to defend their country and um, protect other countries. And uh, they experience another layer uh, of trauma. And so my question to you all is, um, how do you differentiate between those groups? And is there anything being done about that? Well, I can 
say that all the services have in the past done research uh, on recruits coming into the military trying to find out what kind of trauma histories they had, whether there was child abuse, neglect, whether sexual abuse, um, witnessing violence, you know, those kind of issues. Um, and these were anonymous surveys, so they were not attributed to anybody, but they, you know, we found high rates of abuse, particularly um, people experiencing being abused as children, high rates of sexual abuse, particularly with the women coming in, but also with men coming in. So, you know, right now there's there's no rule that says people with a trauma history cannot come in the military. Um, now the problem is that some of these people probably already do have post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, although they were never formally diagnosed and treated. So there is no screening right now trying to identify that when people come in. Um, so unfortunately, you know, they come into the military, they begin to uh, have their military career, which can then lead to additional trauma, particularly when they uh, are uh, deployed to a combat zone. But they might, that doesn't have to be a combat zone. You, you know, there are many people who are sexually assaulted in the military, and that's another kind of trauma. There's all kinds of trauma, which then starts building on trauma. So then you get into kind of complex trauma which I think April can speak to more effectively in terms of uh, what effect that has and how you treat that. So unfortunately, I think what happens is not until people come in and start and then either start having problems or have additional trauma and then start having problems that they then get identified and they get treated. Um, there is no program on the front end trying to treat people for their trauma prior to, when they, that happened prior to coming in the military. So. April, you want to talk some about that build on, you know, the complex trauma and, you know, how that how that becomes complicated in terms of addressing it? Right. Because I think I think you're right, Glenn. I think trauma, you know, people have trauma histories. It's just it's pretty common. And, um, you know, in, in when we're approaching treatment just for the PTSD part, it's a Jason, I think you talked about layers. You know, we think about it at like an onion where the trauma just builds on trauma. And we start to pull back the layers on that trauma. Some people have such very early trauma when they're just kids and growing up that that trauma starts to forge a personality of survival, which then just gets reinforced, let's say, in a combat zone where they're also in a situation where, where they are hardwired really for survival. And that's more difficult to, to, you know, to unfold because it becomes part of that person's approach to how they live their life. And when you have other co-occurring conditions on top of that, let's say you have substance abuse and, and uh, depression, obviously it's important that all of those get addressed. So it's not a simple approach. So we think about a one-stop shop. The one-stop shop may have to have four different programs in it in order to address adequately address these issues because what you identify as a problem then is going to um, direct you to whatever intervention that you need to do. If you're intervening for PTSD, obviously that's a different intervention than if you're intervening for intimate partner violence. If you're intervening for a substance abuse problem, that's different than intervening for PTSD, although they all overlap and they impact each other. So what are the risk factors for the worst IPV situations? Who wants to lead here? <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead, April. Okay. Well, I think the more, the more situations or the more conditions that you have that impact impulsivity, 
So things like if you have somebody who is actively substance using in particular binge, let's say binge drinking, that that, that can impact uh, dangerousness because you can have a situation that changes very quickly uh, where a person, let's say, has been drinking and then starts reacting or responding in an aggressive or, or lethal way. Or if they have a traumatic brain injury and that's impacting their impulsivity, any of those conditions that impact impulsivity um, increase danger. I think the one that, that often gets missed, though, is depression and suicidality. So if you have a person who's depressed, you know, the hallmark of that is that they're hopeless, helpless, they don't care, that sort of thing. It's like, I have nothing to live for. If they're also suicidal, um, you know, I'm thinking about, well, I'm going to kill myself. And then you add the intimate partner violence piece. This is when a suicidal situation could become a homicide, suicide. And so it's, it's one of the pieces that, should be routinely screened for so that if you have somebody depressed, obviously we understand we should be asking about if a person is also suicidal. And then that next piece that often gets missed is, is there any intimate partner violence in the relationship? Because that adds another element to what the implications are for that suicidality. The same is true when there's intimate partner violence, that they should be routinely screening for depression and suicidality because of that increased dangerousness. And and just so you know that there's a whole there's a whole list of risk factors for intimate partner violence and some specifically for lethal intimate partner violence. And the military and veteran population, these risk factors apply to them as well. And these are some things like access to lethal weapons is increases risk for both just IPV and lethal IPV, uh, threats to the partner, threats of suicide. Um, stalking and strangulation and forced sex particularly um, are connected to um, in, uh, lethal intimate partner violence. And when you talk about rape within an intimate partner uh, relationship, people often, the victims often do not come in leading with, I was raped. You know, they talk about the physical violence, they talk about the psychological violence in the relationship, they talk about the pattern of coercive control. Um, but, you know, they they don't come in saying that they were sexually assaulted in that relationship. That usually comes uh, out over time as they develop a relationship with somebody. So we like to be really clear again that the the veteran and military population, in terms of risk factors, are not not significantly different than your general population of intimate partner violence offenders. Some of the things we've been talking about, though, are specific to the military. Um, you know, that constant mobility, kind of geographical isolation and separation, uh, bringing, putting people far away from their support systems and their families, um, the deployment and reunification, the increased stress, these co-occurring issues. Um, these are kind of uh, let, overlay the other risk factors and can increase risk for um, this population particularly. We don't have any data right now, though, to show that the military and po uh, veteran population are, are at higher risk for committing lethal intimate partner violence. Nobody's really done any research on that and has not really um, identified that. So, um, April, do you want to say anything further about kind of these risk factors as they relate to the co-occurring conditions? Well, you know, I would agree that um, that 
the military or veteran population are not more um, dangerously lethal when there's IPV than than people without that background. And I think that that's something, you know, one of those pieces that people may have stereotypes about that the veterans are more lethally dangerous than than non-veterans. And I just want to follow up on that and say that that's not, I, I don't think that there's evidence to show that. No, and April, I think there's also, you had that really interesting case of your um, veteran that you'd been treating for a really long time who was, I think, a Vietnam veteran and had been in PTSD treatment as it relates to lethal intimate partner violence. Do you want to share that? Well, if it's the case I'm thinking of, it's a person that had co uh, several co-occurring conditions, including a history of substance abuse, alcohol abuse, Um Intimate partner violence, but not a lot of physical violence. Actually, very little physical violence in the relationship. But he was a person that, if you asked him, if you felt like life was not worth was not worth living, what kind of situation would that be? And he would say, if my wife were to leave me. And what we think happened is that on um, an unfortunate night, he he had been sober for quite a long time, um, started drinking again, and was binge drinking had access to had access to guns and perhaps we don't know his wife was going to leave him um we think that probably was the case and he ended up killing her and then killing himself now he is a veteran that we would have thought is probably not um what we consider a highly violent batter or highly violent uh, offender because there wasn't f much physical violence, but there were other pieces that very quickly turned for this couple, including the substance, the access to weapons, and probably leaving. And so I think you have to know, you know, the people that you're working with, you have to know what they're, what you're working with and what factors might contribute to a really dangerous lethal situation very quickly. Well, you're bringing up a point that someone might be in a volatile situation, but they have no idea when it may escalate to that extent. I imagine there is some victim education as well so that people know the signs or some signs to get out of that situation or to flee, basically, if it seems to be going out of control. Because what you described does not sound like it has a lot of warning signs. Yeah, I think victims actually are really very savvy to when things are going bad in the relationship and when they need to flee or try and de-escalate or remove themselves from the situation. It's a problem, though, if your victim is also using substance, because if you have a victim that's either using drugs or alcohol, their ability to maybe pick up on an escalating situation or thinking through and problem solving, you know, how to safely disengage from this escalating situation can be impaired if they are also using the substance. And that's possible in the scenario that I just talked about that, that that was also the case with the victim is that she was drinking as well. And so her ability to use, as she had in the past, disengage from an escalating situation. I'm so sorry, but we have to care. cut off. We have another break, our last break. You'll be right back. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. 
a dynamic woman? Sandra Beck and Linda Crater host Dynamic Women Talk Radio, bringing lively weekly shows in a roundtable format with influential guests from around the globe. This amazing tribe of diverse and accomplished women share their candid views on topics such as reputation, handling rejection, loyalty, what is sexy, overthinking, blended families, and much more. Discussions are joyful with freedom to address topics from various perspectives with candor, respect, and no judgment. These are the conversations you wish you could have with all your family and friends. Dynamic women have lived their lives boldly with unexpected and sometimes undesired turns in the road of life. Yet detours and bumps bring opportunity, personal growth, more authenticity, and a fresh outlook. Join our welcoming tribe of dynamic women each Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time, also on iTunes, and more information at dynamicwomentalkradio.com. Celebrating vibrant, charismatic women everywhere. intimate partner violence. In our last section, we were talking about when does someone know when to leave or to flee. And it is not so easy to just pack up, get in the car and go. Uh, There may be children involved. Where do you go that you won't be followed? How do you stay safe? In some cases, that can actually escalate things. So, uh, Glenna, take this one. Um, How does someone know what to do? I'd like to talk about the the victim in this case. You know, people have make a lot of assumptions about why someone stays in a relationship where there's violence. Um, and, you know, there a lot of you hear them, you know, well, they must like it, um, you know, all kinds of different explanations. But the reality is what you were just saying, Linda. I mean, you know, first of all, resources is a key issue, right. um, you know, and if you have a battering uh, relationship where there's a lot of coercive control in the relationship, they often don't have access to the money. Mm-hmm. They often don't have anywhere to go. They often do have children. I mean, there are shelters, but shel- shelters are full. There's not always beds available. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, to think that someone can just pick up and leave and then they're not going to be in danger anymore is also not correct because, you know, there's research that shows when someone, uh, when a victim in an a ongoing intimate partner violence situation tries to leave a relationship, that the risk and danger of lethal intimate partner violence increases. And I've, I've talked with many women who indeed did try to leave the relationship. They went to different places. They went to different states. And their abuser found them no matter where they went. They were stalking them and they were finding them. And there's all kinds of technology that allows them to do that these days. Absolutely. Well, and and isn't it true also that you can't always get a restraining order? And if you do get a restraining order, it actually doesn't mean that you're safe. No, it doesn't. And whether it's a civilian protection order or a military protection order, uh, it's a piece of paper. And, you know, it, it... it depends on the abuser totally what their situation is. If someone feels like they just don't have anything to lose, then they don't care. You know, that piece of paper is not going to keep them from finding that person. We had a case here in the D.C. area where there was a Navy family and they moved her on to a military installation in the Navy in the military housing trying to protect her from her civilian um, abuser. But, you know, he got on that base anyway and he killed her. And so... Um, you're right. Protection orders that we need to be very clear with victims that 
you know, there's a place for protection orders and they can be helpful, but they are not all that's important in terms of safety planning and ensuring that someone is safe. So let's uh, talk if, further about victim safety, April. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up with what um, Glenna was talking about here is that uh, one of the things that I did is because I don't have the, the body of knowledge and expertise necessarily in all of the things that might be helpful for a victim to do a safety plan. And so I do try and hook a victim up with a victim advocate who has the, the knowledge of the resources, who can help them problem solve their unique situation, who can help them talk through, uh, I want to stay in this relationship now, I'm not ready to leave, I don't have things in place to leave, who can understand that and help them develop a plan, whether they're staying in the relationship or they're trying to leave, to try and do it in the safest way possible. And so I think it's important for all of us to be aware of who are, who are our resources in the community, um, who are the victim advocates, how can we hook these people up with victim advocates or with resource centers where they can get um, that type of help. And it's really important to um, <clears throat> always know that risk and danger assessment and safety planning, these are ongoing processes. You can't just do that one time and think, okay, I'm done with that because the situations are constantly changing and, yes. and you need to be working with the victim to kind of be looking at that constantly and helping them identify um, kind of avenues for safety for them, whether they're still in the relationship or whether they're leaving the relationship. And and if I can follow up on that, um, <laughs> as a healthcare provider, what I watched for, whether I was working with a primary aggressor or a, a victim, is what are those changing situations and paid attention to it. Um, is a couple breaking up? Are there custody issues? Has someone who's been sober, clean and sober, using again? Um, it was you know, my responsibility as a healthcare professional to understand how that played out for this couple in this relationship and to be aware of those changing situations and ask frequently enough so that I, I, I could actually address it in my healthcare setting. Is there enough staff to do this at the level that you're talking about? Well, Is there enough staff, did you say? Or? Yes, because if you're looking at individual plans for each of the victims, and then clearly there has to be offender accountability as well, do we have a, a good system in place right now that can take both pieces and work on it simultaneously if the couple decides they want to stay together or if it's safe to stay together? Well, there are resources. I mean, there are a lot of resources. You know, the federal government has grants through the Office on Violence Against Women where there are many domestic violence programs, probably mostly in almost all communities, except maybe not really rural communities. There are offender intervention programs as well. But I do know that the data shows that it, for any day in this country, there are victims being turned away from shelters because there just is not space. So there are resources, but whether there's adequate money out there, adequate resources to, to meet the needs of every single person, probably not. But they do have access to a victim advocate in programs, even if they don't go into a shelter, as April was talking about before. So and then, you know, in our last program, we talked about the VA and their new intimate partner violence program that they're putting into place. So they are 
uh, devoting some resources to it. The Department of Defense has the Family Advocacy Program. They have devoted resources to it, too. But are there adequate resources? Of course not. There are never- <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Let's talk a little bit about offender accountability. What's the best plan in your view, April? Well, I, you know, in my setting as a healthcare provider, I had to know if an issue was present. So, you know, this goes back to the screening and assessment. I had to know, is there intimate partner violence in this relationship? And if there is, am I working with a primary aggressor? Or am I working with, with a victim? And and this is where things can get fuzzy at times because an offender may not want to to acknowledge or identify that they are being intimately violent in the relationship. Although what we found with research is that if you ask in a, you know, confidential, straightforward, you know, sort of way as part of your routine screening, that offenders will self-disclose that this is going on. And what I do is I address the impact on them as a person, the impact on their family, try and reduce the, um, oh, you know, the negativity around what they're feeling about, about engaging in those behaviors. But I also educate them that, re- that the responsibility stops with them in terms of stopping those behaviors. So if we, if we don't identify intimate partner violence and we attribute all these behaviors to something else, we say, oh, this is PTSD or this is depression or this is TBI or whatever, then, then, then the person is not held accountable for stopping those behaviors and our invent- interventions are not going to be effective in stopping those behaviors because they're not addressing the core issue of intimate partner violence. And and offender accountability is kind of a complex issue, and there's a lot of controversy around it these days. I mean, there there are offender intervention programs. There are a lot of people who don't think they work. Um, There is some data that shows they actually don't work for subgroups of people, but they do work for the majority of people. There's a lot of uh, disagreement about whether our military and veteran offenders should go into civilian offender intervention programs. I mean, there is an ex- you know there's a belief that they are so somehow so different from our other um, general population of offenders that they should not be in those programs. But as we have said today, they are more alike than different from those offenders. So how, what accountability means in terms of, you know, whether they get into a court system, uh, whether they go to offender intervention programs, whether they get other kind of intervention, it, it, it's, you know, there's a lot of different opinions about it. And, but the key is there has to be some level of accountability or otherwise that behavior is not going to stop. And a lot of times that has to be external because the victim cannot stop the violence. As April was just saying, it is the offender who can stop the violence. Very important. I want to make sure we have time to pass on resources for our listeners if they are interested. Um, let's start with April. Can you name some resources people could go to? Well, actually, I think uh, both Glenna and I uh, could talk quite a bit about what resources are available, and it, it depends on what you're identifying. Um, the VA, if, if, if there's a veteran out there, the VA doesn't necessarily have the types of programs available for offenders at this point. There might be some in, in some of the VA, larger VA medical centers, but they're probably going to need to access that type of care out there in the community. They can certainly get 
very um, in-depth, complex care around issues of TBI, substance abuse, um, PTSD, uh, all of those other kinds of co-occurring issues, but probably not offender intervention in particular, um, except for in certain settings. Okay, Glenna? Well, I would just like to say that I would encourage victims to contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline. There's a website and there's a number and it's very protected. They help people find local resources, um, the domestic violence programs, the shelters are important. The Battered Women's Justice Project has a lot of really good information under the Military and Veteran Advocacy Program. There's a lot of materials on that website. Um, and so those would be the main ones I would emphasize. But the hotline is probably key. They help people sort out about uh, risk and danger, about safety planning, about resources, um, and, you know, can help them uh, identify what their options might be. So, um, and we have done some training with the uh, advocates at the National Domestic Violence Hotline around military and veteran issues. So they do have some level of awareness of that. Um, so um, that, those are the resources I would emphasize. I think that's terrific. Thank you both for shedding further light on how complex the situation is, but also the hopefulness that there are programs that are evolving and that are truly bringing some relief uh, as this is talked about more, that the awareness is raised and that everyone is aware that they know what reasonable behavior is, but when the behavior has gone off the tracks, that there are ways to get it back on the tracks. Thank you both for joining us today. We will be back next week with another program of interest to you, I'm sure. And we thank you very much for joining us this morning. Talk to you next week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Mill Resource Radio. For more information, go to millresourceradio.com.